topic is going to be defending occupationals in New Jersey. I'm glad you could be here. My name is Greg Lois. I'm the managing partner of Lois LLC. Uh, feel free to email me or call me with any questions you have about this presentation. Uh, this is a small part of our overall outreach that we do here at Lois LLC. Uh, I hope everyone who's watching this webinar has a copy of our, our written handbook has visited our website where we have literally hundreds and hundreds of articles on topics in New Jersey workers' compensation law and, of course, have uh, subscribed to our newsletter. Uh, today's webinar topic is occupational claims in New Jersey, and we're really going to focus in on how we practically defend these cases. We're going to give some sort of practical tips and sort of some of the tricks of the trade uh, of how we dispute and defend these claims. Uh, these cases always start off the same way. You get a call from your location, you're insured, and they want to know, hey, is this claim compensable? And this occupational claims, we're really talking about repetitive traumas. We're talking about occupational exposures, usually uh, ventilatory claims. Uh, these are the types of claims that are atypical, right? Our locations are used to seeing traumatic incidents. You know, there's a, someone breaks their leg. I mean, these are very obvious traumatic specific losses um, in New Jersey. Uh, sometimes mental injuries can be compensable. New Jersey does have a concept of mental-mental, uh, as well as uh, physical-mental. Um, of course, we're always looking at different kinds of claims, I mean, chemical exposures, assaults, uh, even claims that we're characterizing as idiopathic. Uh, today we're talking about occupational claims that are occupational or repetitive in nature. When do we usually see these? Well, I mean, sometimes I call these retirement cases in New Jersey because typically they come at the termination of a, uh, an entire plant. Like, so we're closing down a location. All of a sudden, all of our workers all of a sudden now have occupational claims. Uh, sometimes they're just add-ons because they've gone to see an attorney about a Social Security disability application, and the attorney's like, hey, maybe we have a workers' comp claim here as well. And I, I characterize these, generally speaking, as retirement claims. Usually they are not being brought by active employees. Uh, of course, you may have some employments where our employees are being exposed to very specific types of uh, environmental conditions or repetitive work processes, and we're going to talk about that. So uh, again, this is sort of uh, industry by industry, but typically uh, we see these types of claims usually after a plant closing, a layoff, or a voluntary retirement. All right, how do we know it's an occupational claim? Well, it should say it right on the claim petition. I will admit to you that some of our uh, petitioner's attorneys are a little bit sloppy about how they plead these. This is the official um, claim petition form, which is on the uh, Division of Workers' Compensation's website. Uh, as you can see on this form, it's very clear, it's very specific. It says, hey, did you have an occupational injury? If so, check this box. And then it even says you've got to list the um, times and the, uh, the exposure periods. Well, you don't have to use this form. Uh, claim petitions are not standard across New Jersey. There's absolutely nothing that says that a petitioner's attorney has to use a specific type of form. And so we don't see this form all the time and not as neatly. Um, and the reason I bring this up is because sometimes petitioner's attorneys are a little bit sloppy, but sometimes they're being sly. Uh, sometimes a claim that should have been pled as a specific loss, right? Think about like a one-time plant explosion where uh, we're exposing people to some chemical that was released in our plant just once. That's really a specific loss. That should be pled as a specific traumatic injury. And of course, the two-year statute of limitations begin running. Sometimes a petitioner's attorney will try to get a little sneaky and they'll sort of characterize or try to characterize actual specific traumatic losses as occupational to get around statute of limitations uh, situations. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about the definition of occupational injuries and how they are defined and how they are uh, found compensable. First of all, 
uh, the petitioner bears the burden of proof, and they must show that the condition arose out of in the course of the employment, okay, and was characteristic or peculiar to the employment, okay? In other words, there has to be some sort of objective scientific or medical basis for the petitioner to be claiming that their condition is actually related to the employment. And the reason I stress this is because you will see claims uh, for conditions which are not peculiar to any type of employment. I mean, I've seen claims uh, for things like sick building syndrome, uh, chronic halitosis, pattern baldness, I mean, just crazy, crazy things. Um, and they're not specific to any one employment. They're not peculiar to them. Um, sometimes uh, people think that first responders, police, uh, ambulance drivers, uh, paramedics are somehow entitled to post-traumatic stress disorder claims because of what they've seen during the course of their employment. Nope, not peculiar to them. There's nothing peculiar. Th that These are the normal stresses that uh, arise out of the course of that employment. Uh, so you should be disputing those. Um, stress, just general stress claims, like my job is stressful and I don't like it, that is not compensable. Uh, the general workplace stress is not uh, uh, peculiar to any specific employment unless it goes beyond uh, just normal discipline and normal supervision and normal, uh, you know, sometimes being corrected by your boss. If it goes beyond that and becomes discriminatory or retaliatory, or if it is uh, sexual in nature, sexual harassment um, is uh, could be compensable uh, under an occupational theory if it occurred over a long period of time. Um, so we have to characterize the type of workplace stress, but generally speaking, it is not compensable. Of course, if it was, all of us would have workers' comp claims, right? Um, and finally, sitting. Sitting's not peculiar to any job. There's a new or a recent case that was decided just a few years ago, Renner versus AT&T which the appellate division essentially said, look, just because you sat on your butt for 10 hours, 12 hours a day, that doesn't give rise to your ultimate cardiovascular condition. Uh, so uh, lethargy, inaction, a sedentary job, that is not peculiar to any one specific employment. All right, let's talk about legal defenses. You know, we've got like four typical legal defenses that we're bringing out in pretty much every workers' compensation case that we defend in an occupational context. Let me just start off by saying, generally speaking, Almost every occupational claim should be denied from the outset. Uh, we should not be accepting these claims as compensable, and the reason for that is the burden of proof is on the petitioner. Okay, uh, We have legal defenses in these cases. They include the statute of limitations, the defense of notice, the defense of, hey, I'm not last, right? Uh, it's not uh, a get-out-of-jail-free pass, but that's in New Jersey there is a get-out-of-jail, uh, or sorry, a not-last uh, doctrine, uh, which we're going to talk about in a second. And then finally, um, is there any medical evidence? Uh, is there anything here to establish causal relationship in any way? All right, let's talk about the statute of limitations. Uh, it's enshrined in the statute. Uh, it's section 34 of our statute, and it essentially says they've got two years from the date they knew or should have known that they were exposed. Um, essentially, uh, this is uh, really a, a, a difficult uh, defense to raise because oftentimes the petitioners will claim that they had no idea that they were exposed or what they were exposed to, all right? Uh, same thing with notice. In, uh, we have a notice defense. Uh, the petitioner has to give us notice that they're going to bring a workers' compensation claim in the occupational context. Well, generally speaking, they never give us notice because, A, they're either separated from the employment, B, the location is closed, or C, they didn't really have a claim until they went to see their friendly attorney at law who told them, hey, you should go to... Dr. X and Dr. Y who are going to find an occupational condition and that will make it uh, related to the employment. So 
Of course, uh, uh, I'm a little bit cynical here because I, I don't think that these claims are, are usually genuine and legitimate. Um, however, uh, the notice defense is essentially uh, very weak in our case. Uh, you know, typically they should be telling us this. Uh, it's been essentially negated by case law. All right. Uh, last exposure, bond. Uh, you'll he often hear when you're defending these uh, workers' compensation cases, you'll hear our employers saying over and over and over again, hey, I'm not last. Somebody else was last. And that's because the rule in New Jersey is where there has been successive exposure or exposure through multiple employers, the employer who was on the risk when the uh, 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 condition was detected or manifested will be the employer who is exposed for workers' compensation purposes. Um, all right, and finally, let's talk about medical diagnosis and causal relationship. Um, obviously, we're getting IMEs in these cases, and we're disputing them very strenuously. But let's talk just for a second about uh, how we dispute the claims that the petitioner is bringing. Because the petitioner is going to have an IME physician or a one-off doctor that they went to once who's going to give us an opinion. Um, these opinions are going to say things like, uh, there are synergistic exposures, even though there was a very minor amount of asbestos in this workplace, or maybe it was in the workplace, not even in a place close to where the employee worked. That, plus their personal risk factors, which include, of course, cigarette smoking and all sorts of other risk factors, created this condition. I mean, this idea of synergy or synergistic uh, forces combining, uh, that should absolutely be disputed and challenged. Um, single molecule theories. Uh, Fifteen years ago, there were physicians saying that if there's a single molecule of a cancer-causing agent found anywhere in the workplace, and they would determine this by use of MSDSs, material safety data sheets, uh, then of course every uh, cancer that has ever developed in this workplace was a result of that one-time exposure, even if there's a single molecule. I mean, these are very weak theories. Um, further, petitioners' attorneys will often produce these net opinions from doctors. So the doctor will just know two facts. The person has cancer. The person has a pulmonary defect. And he'll know one other fact. He worked for an employer. And the opinion will just simply says, he has cancer, he worked for this employer, ergo, the cancer is due to working for the employer. And, I, and these opinions are really based on nothing. There's nothing really there. There's no studies they're looking at. There's no longitudinal tests. It's just really a, hey, I, I think uh, this is what, the, uh, uh, what caused it. And those are just purely net opinions, and they should be um, uh, challenged. And finally, uh, the, uh, the position or the um, threshold that the petitioner has to meet is they have to show causation more than just de minimis, right? So they have to affirmatively show how their condition actually was caused by the employment uh, or exposures in the employment. And that's a difficult standard for them to actually meet. So that's something where we want to really hold their feet to the fire. How these cases are closed? Well, we try them, we settle them, or they get dismissed. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because I'm going to talk right now about how we do practically, how we defend these cases. Okay, step one or step zero or before you even wake up in the morning when you hear someone claiming they have an occupational claim, our general position should be to deny and challenge these claims. Why? Again, the burden of proof is on the petitioner. Two, it sets you up for a section 20 or a de minimis, maybe a cost of litigation uh, settlement to resolve a matter quickly. Three. Uh, we're denying the cases uh, because, generally speaking, we know things about the actual exposure. We probably know more about the actual exposure, or at least we should know more about the actual exposure, than our adversary does, right? Uh, the video that's up on the slide right now is basically asking the question, hey, 
we know what our plant looks like. We know what our facility like looks like. We know what our uh, workers are doing. Hey, does the, do these claims make any sense at all? I mean, really, do they fit with our understanding of what actually goes on in our own workplace? Um, and, and when we've had, again, maybe we've had a specific leak or an explosion or something in our facility, uh, but then should the claim be characterized as an occupational? Maybe it should be characterized as a traumatic. So again, let's, let's look at our actual risk. And sometimes, I know as a carrier, uh, when I'm defending carriers, they don't have a great deal of insight into the location. They don't have uh, boots on the ground, somebody in the actual workplace. Um, all right, but there's plenty of places we can go to get information about this workplace. I mean, just think about the type of OSHA reporting uh, and uh, Department of Labor testing that's done in the average workplace. And the answer is a lot of it. And that's all uh, obtainable. It can be obtained via Freedom of Information Act request. It can be obtained via subpoena. So we can really start to find out what's going on in this workplace. Obviously, post-loss, we're going to ask questions like, hey, was personal protective equipment, PPEs, were they uh, available? Were people using them? Is there a record that this petitioner was issued PPEs and that they used them? Um, the only kinds of occupational cases that I typically see being accepted sort of right off the bat are carpal tunnels. Some of our employers are like, hey, Greg, look at this workplace. I mean, they're, they're using their hands all day. We're on, a, we're on an assembly line or they're operating machines all day. When a carpal tunnel case comes in, we just accept them. We don't fight them. And the reason is because, generally speaking, the carpal tunnel surgery is quite successful at relieving the condition. And uh, it's cheaper just to, like, maybe just uh, accept them. So. Uh, but even in those cases, hey, have, has there been uh, ergonomic studies in the workplace? Have there been uh, studies about uh, in industrial hygiene? What, what have we done? What do we know about the workplace? So that's the first place to start. And by the way, that information, when we give it to our IME doctor, that's pretty powerful stuff. Generally speaking, the petitioner's IME physician, the physician who's coming forward with this opinion that, hey, uh, he's got a condition, B, he worked in a workplace, ergo, it must be because he worked in the workplace, well, if we're able to show NIOSH testing, OSH records, our own internal industrial hygiene records, uh, reports and surveys and samples and air quality tests, all from the location, which show, hey, there was none of this stuff in the workplace, or if it was, maybe it shows up on an MSDS somewhere, but it's not actually uh, you know, affecting the workforce, and here's our industrial hygiene uh, testing and reports to show that. Well, doesn't our IME doctor now have a lot more information? And doesn't our IME doctor able to produce a more credible report? I think so. Those are ways to defend the case. Uh, New Jersey allows actually a lot of discovery in workers' compensation cases uh, in the occupational context. First of all, we can serve them with the normal request for medical information. This is a demand for copies of any and all medical records related to their claim. Most of the time, that's just their IME report, okay, from their one-time visit to the pulmonologist who gave them pulmonary function tests on a computer and then said they had a ventilatory defect, okay? Uh, but we can absolutely serve them with interrogatories. And the interrogatories are pretty powerful. Uh, let's talk about that. They require that the petitioner set forth the dates of all treatment and who they got treatment with. We can then go back, I'm going to go back on one slide, we can go back and then use subpoenas and HIPAA releases to go obtain all that medical information. Sometimes we discover that the condition that they're alleging is related to our employment. Was They got treatment for it 10 years ago. By the way, while they work for a different employer, great, now I've got someone else I can point the finger at in terms of successive exposure. I love this kind of stuff. Um, have they filed out a social, uh, filled out uh, and filed a social security uh, disability application. What are they claiming on that application? What are the conditions? And of course, uh, if when we're representing the employer uh, directly uh, or through a carrier, we should be able to obtain the petitioner's personal health records, which were 
uh, part of their employee uh, personnel file. Okay, again, some some of my clients will say, hey, "Let's get a HIPAA before we do that." Um, there is an exemption in HIPAA requirements for us to get the actual medical records of the petitioner's employer. Regardless, those are very valuable because they can con show that the condition manifested was fixed and measurable d a decade ago. Or, hey, look, judge. Uh, when we're arguing the case, look, they never had a single day worth of treatment for this ever. They went to one IME doctor, judge, this is a de minimis case, let's section 20 and get rid of this thing, okay? Uh, selection of our IME physician, incredibly important. Uh, this is where we should spend a lot of time and effort to make sure we get uh, the exact right expert for our case. Um, you'll find that in the uh, pulmonary context, uh, and those are the typically the post-retirement or post-separation claims that we see, in that context, Petitioner's counsel are using general physicians, general surgeons, you know, general practice doctors. I love to use pulmonologists. Uh, I can give uh, suggestions and recommendations of who to use if you uh, need some suggestions. Uh, and then we like to give the physician a cover letter which gives them a much uh, as thorough an overview of the petitioner's work history and records, and of course, all the medicals, everything we've obtained through discovery, all our occupational interrogatory answers, everything we can. Um, we're going to be able to cross-examine the petitioner's IME physician. Generally speaking, their credentials aren't the best. Um, I like to prep with my expert questions for how I'm going to attack their findings. Um, they're supposed to be focusing on objective scientific evidence, but are they? Um, I like to cross-examine them on how subjective their, their statements of exposures are, and of course discuss uh, the existing medicals. All right. Uh, surveillance in uh, occupational cases, generally speaking, are not, is not that useful. Uh, generally speaking, we're fighting about the actual exposure more so than the amount of disability. Um, however, I just want to remind everyone surveillance might be valuable in cases where they are claiming a significant disability. And let's remember, every dum-dum in America has placed themselves under self-surveillance with their Facebook accounts and Twitter and Instagram and all the other things that they're up to. So what a great, easy piece of low-hanging fruit to go and grab on these claimants. All right. Um, ultimately, uh, the majority of the cases that we resolve are by way of settlement. Uh, generally speaking, we are trying to push these cases towards a Section 20 resolution. Um, that is our goal in the, the majority of these cases. Again, usually when we see these, they are post-separation, post-termination claims. And our goal is to move them quickly to, to, to resolve them. Very few of these get actually tried. And that's basically because of the maturity of the proofs. The petitioner's attorneys are using the same IME physicians all the time. The cases have quite predictable outcomes. Generally speaking, don't need to be tried except in the most extreme cases. All right, uh, that's a little bit about handling occupational claims. Uh, this is not a live webinar. Unfortunately, it had to be pre-recorded due to my travel schedule. Uh, please feel free to reach out to me. Uh, my email address is here, and my office phone number is up on the screen. Please feel free to reach out to me with any questions you have, and please join us next month. Our topic is going to be getting the most from your IMEs, and we're going to talk more in depth about prepping the IME physician, picking the IME physician, and then how we use the IMEs effectively to resolve claims. Okay, thanks for joining us. Have a great week.